Well, good morning. We're on chapter 11 today. So, we are uh, getting to the part of Acts where we're like, uh, we're changing scenes, kind of sort of. Like, in, you know, in a movie, you got three acts. Well, we're about to change it to act two of this, of this narrative. <clears throat> the focus is being on the apostles and the church in Jerusalem and spreading of the gospel throughout Judea. We've seen a lot of stuff, and uh, but the, our focus is six of the move. Okay, we're going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. The remainder of the book will mostly focus on the Jewish, uh, the Gentile world, <clears throat> and um, the center, kind of the epicenter, is going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. So I thought today we would take some time to set the scene, as it were. For what we're going to see in the rest of the book, we'll talk about Antioch. We'll learn some stuff about Antioch. We're going to talk about Barnabas a bit more <clears throat> because Barnabas is uh, going to play a pretty important role here. And uh, but before we get to that, let's finish up. Kind of this scene of Peter and the the conversion of Cornelius, because now we have to get to Peter's defense. For Peter, uh, after he stays on with Cornelius for a few days, if we see at the end of chapter ten, it says he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now we don't know how long he stayed or what. You know, that, I'm sure they just Peter hung out a while. They fellowshiped. He probably give them some. Some more theology, gave them some more truths about here's what the prophets say and here's how Jesus has fulfilled these things. Just, you know, supposition there, but we don't know. But after that's over, he returns to Jerusalem and the Jews are not happy with him. And they're not happy with him because he because he he spoke the gospel to a Gentiles because he ate with them. He went in their house and ate with them. So they're not really on board with where Peter is yet. Okay? So we'll just let's just pick it up right there, chapter eleven. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Amen to that. And I guess while we're reading this, let's just kind of pay attention to the names of the believers. Okay, so right there we see apostles, we see brethren. They're called that a lot. Disciple, brethren. We have apostles. We have a few who've been named as deacons. We've seen them be called followers of the way. So they have a lot of ways they refer to themselves. Let's just kind of pay attention to that. So verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, that's Jews, Jewish believers, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, quote, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you? It's kind of the way they're saying that. Like I guess said, they're not uh, 
They're not unhappy because Peter gave the gospel to a Gentile. They're unhappy because he associated with a Gentile. Because he entered a Roman soldier's home and, and broke bread with him and ate with him. <clears throat> so Peter gives his defense here. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. And then he goes on to relate his vision that he has with the sheep, with the unclean animals. And he gives it step by step, word for word, because we just studied all that, so there, we don't really need to go through all this again. It's the exact same thing we just read in chapter 10. He's just relating it secondhand, so... We don't really need to go back over all that because <clears throat> we just studied all that. So let's skip to uh, verse 15. Did you notice that there's a little difference in, in how he described himself in his this this version? How who described himself? Peter? Peter. When he, he discussed how he said to God, by no means. Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Uh, well, that's exactly what he said. What did he say? And maybe I didn't. Maybe I did notice it. He said, "But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean." What did he say here? But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I don't. What's the difference? I would think there's quite a bit of difference because he is. It seems to me he's kind of elevated his uh, position on how he's never done anything like this, uncommon or unclean. He's followed the law, and I still think Peter is struggling who come to terms with what he's been commanded to to do. Oh yeah, I think so too. Yeah, he's he is not on board yeah. with it. He, he's gonna regress at Antioch a little bit, but yeah, he's you know, he's struggling with it. I would definitely agree with that, but I, but what he says at the vision and what he recounts in Jerusalem, I I don't see any difference in that. And so I think that on when he says has <clears throat> ever entered my mouth and well I think he's just saying I've never eaten anything well I think that there's a reason for those words and when you go back to look at another time when this exact subject has come up in Matthew 15 uh, Peter absolutely struggled with understanding this exact uh, same uh, concept. But yeah, well, we know Peter's he's hard-headed. We, we know that. That's one thing we can say about Peter throughout the Gospels and up to this point, he's hard-headed. And uh, tends to speak his mind and put his foot in his mouth. And it's, it's all about, I, I'm all that and I, you know, I'm doing it all right, and look at me, and, you know, that self-righteous pride sneaks back in. And in, in uh, verse Matthew 15, 10, and 11, he says, Jesus says, hear and understand. 
it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then he says, uh, the disciples came to him and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And, and, it, and I hear them as, as I do, I've done it to say, oh, I'm not going to say that I'm offended because, oh my God, that would make me look bad. I'm going to say somebody else. Well, you know, my friend is struggling with this problem. And, and I, I, it's like they didn't, they couldn't get it. They, they were they were offended. Well, let's go back and look they at They were saying the Pharisees were offended, but they really weren't. Yeah, they were really. Well, the, the lesson was for the, for the, for the disciples there. And uh, that's definitely connected. But let's go back to 1034 and see what Peter says. He said uh, when he begins to speak to, to Cornelius' household, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Now that tense of that is he's is that I am now coming to understand. Now the way that's written in English there, it's almost like he says, I've got it now. I don't think that's really in the in the Greek. That's not what that's that connotation. The connotation of that is I am now coming to understand. I'm now getting it. But we know he don't have it fully because he goes to Antioch and he's eating with Gentiles, and some some Jews come, and he backs off and says, "Well, I don't I don't want to be seen eating with these Gentiles." So he still struggles with this. But we can certainly say that that statement, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. Now, that's a direct statement from Peter. So. You know, he's, he understands what God's trying to show him. He just ain't quite moved it from here to here yet, you know. Yeah. He's talking the talk, but yeah. he's not walking the I mean, walk. Peter's a man just like, just like I am. So it may take a little bit for Peter to get from his head to his heart. <clears throat> but he recounts it to them exactly as it happened when he's when he's defending himself against his brothers. It's, it's, it's identical. I mean, he may... Change the wording up instead of saying I didn't eat, I don't eat this I don't put it in my mouth it's the same thing he's just saying I don't eat unclean stuff but God told me God's what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy this happened three times I mean God had to do it to him three times okay, that's that's why that he said I get this Peter understand this I say they're not unclean you don't get to call them unclean. So, yeah, Peter's still struggling, but I don't think there's any, uh, I think he's just recounting the events as they happened. Right well, here. I'll just say that when I read it the second time with the wording entered my mouth, that triggered me to remember some other words that Jesus said. When Jesus said, said whatever enters your mouth is what yes. does not defile you? And, Surely, yeah. And I didn't, it didn't click to me on that. That's a that's a definite callback to when Jesus said, "Whatever enters your mouth is not defiled a man; it's what comes out of a man that defiles." If you read all of that, there's some serious things to learn there. Jesus was trying to tell him then, eating eating the pig doesn't defile you. 
I'm so glad. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> Amen to that. So let's just, let's go to 15. And he says, and as I began to speak, this is what he's talking to Cornelius. He's relating. And he, he's giving them the gospel. And that's how he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's remembering back to his time walking with Jesus, what Jesus said about this. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? But that's the right attitude. Okay, Remember what we said last week? I don't get to tell God how he operates in his world. I don't get to tell God how he saves people. Okay? God is, he's king, not, not me. So that's basically what Peter's saying here. God gave him the gift. Who am I to stand in his way? Okay? And he's telling this to the other Jewish believers, right? He's, he's letting them know why he went in and ate with these people. So the, the other people who were all up in arms about it, when they heard this, they quieted down, or you could they could also be translated, they, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Well then, they kind of threw a print, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Amen to that. You know, they're all like, Okay, Peter, you you know, you had the vision. You saw the Holy Spirit fall on him with six. Remember, he had six witnesses with him. Remember that. And so, what could they say? Are we going to tell God he can't save Gentiles? Okay. So, Peter's argument there is basically that God's in charge here and we're not. Okay. Jesus is the head of the church, not Peter. Okay. Although Peter is basically de facto leader as far as the, where the church stands on the earth as it is, Jesus is the head of the church. Always has been, always will be. God, Jesus builds his church the way he sees fit. So that's what Peter's telling them here, that God's in charge here, not us. And so the principle I want us to get from that is look around, see what God is doing, and then join Okay. That's what we should be doing. Look and see what God's doing. If he's showing us something that he's working in somebody's life, or he's working on this person, then we should join in him with that and, and do what we can to to help God in that, whatever he's doing. Whether that be a, a mission somewhere, you meet a missionary and he tells you what's going on in Jakarta, wherever he's at, and maybe we should give him some a little some help, money, financial aid, whatever. Or somebody next door to you. See the Lord working in our life. We should be jumping in there and doing what we can. And it's interesting, I think, that ironic part where Peter knew it was the Lord. He said, Lord, mm -hmm. he knew it. And yet, what was he did? What did he say? I know me. By no means, Lord. Oh. Yeah. What are you talking about? Come on now. I am arguing with God. Yeah, that's what I just picture. <laughs> it's just hard to imagine that you're having a vision. God says, he says, he goes, ah, nah, nah. But it's been 
Yeah, I don't I think, think so. Yeah. Yeah. Not something that you can just like everyone around you believes this way. But this really shouldn't be that much of a surprise to these people. Okay. They weren't like us. They studied their scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They 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 read the scriptures every Sabbath, and this was clearly laid out in the Old Testament prophecy that the Gentiles would receive the word of the Lord. And a very good example of that is Isaiah forty nine six. Let's look at that. Y'all remember the servant songs in Isaiah? For those of us that were in the Isaiah study. Isaiah 49 lands right in those servant songs. And, um, and it's pretty explicit. 49.6. We'll just read this real quick. I know it shouldn't take a lot of explanation because it's pretty plain. Let's do it. We'll just start in five. And he says, And now, says the Lord, you formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is a servant song. Okay, we're talking about Jesus here. Suffering servant. And now says the Lord, he formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered in. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. And he says this, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So that's pretty plain language in the prophets that, that salvation would go to the nations. And the nations in Old Testament always means Gentiles. Nations, plural. Same with... Uh, What's that word Isaiah used to use all the time, Chuck, that meant foreign foreign nations, um, coastland, co is it coastlands? Coast, yeah. 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 Anytime it says coastlands, that means another not Israel. So anyway, that's, you know, they, they should have seen this coming. But over all those years, they got ossified into this, this walkology, basically. Can't really call it theology. Walk, their walkology was set by the Pharisees over all these generations and generations and generations of building these fences around the law, building fences around the fences. And they got very uh, hidebound into their their worldview, right? Gentiles are dogs. And that, that's just like... Somebody saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go over here to my neighbors. I think his dog needs salvation. I'm going to preach the gospel to that dog. That's what they would say. They would think of Peter. You're, you're going, you're giving, you're trying to, you're talking to a dog. You know, what are you doing? You're, you're wasting your time. <clears throat> so anyway. It certainly gives us pause to consider some of the things that we've been brought up with or traditions. You know, even, even the worldly slogans that we have. That we should question all of that. You bet. And and say, is this the word of the Lord? That's exactly what we should get from this. Mm -hmm. We should look at our preconceptions, our traditions, our worldview traditions, especially coming from outside the church, just the culture, our culture. Okay, that's the word I'm looking for. We should be looking at the, the things we've absorbed from our culture that 
maybe not so good for a Christian to be adhering to. That's that continued sanctification. That's right. Well, just, right. like, just like we do today, some people pick the things they like out of the Word and then they leave the mess with it. <laughs> so uh, I just choose to skip over the fact that Jesus was a suffering servant, or I choose to skip over the fact that the Gentiles are going to be included. Because... Yeah. Well, I prefer not to talk about the wrath of God. <laughs> well, people, they do that too. Well, so that kind of brings us to the end of, even though we're not ending a chapter, you know, that, that that's kind of the end of the Cornelius story, okay? And so, really, this 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 would have probably, to me, would have been a better chapter break. I'm not sure why they did it the way they did, but... Well, actually, yeah, this, this, this is kind of starting this new... We're changing, the camera's moving, the narrator's speaking, and all this happened while some of these people went to Antioch. So let's let's just kind of get the beginning of this and then see where see what see what's happening. Before you go on, I had a question about uh Simon the Tanner and thinking about why did Peter stay with Simon if if he was an unclean and no good No no that's not Simon was not unclean or no good. His profession People didn't like the, the Tanner's profession because of the smell, and that he, he was dealing with dead animals. Because I, I looked that up, and, and certainly, if you're touching a clean animal that's dead, you are not unclean. We wouldn't have any sacrifices. The priests, every time they killed a lamb, would be unclean. And the skins of the tent were not Unclean. They were from clean animals, and they yeah. uh, were either rams or. Well, that's a good question. That's a good point. If I, if y'all got from me that, that Simon the Tanner was considered unclean, that's not at all the case. It was just distasteful to a fastidious Jew. They just didn't like to be around. The Tanners had to be outside of town because of the smell and just the, what they were engaged in. Making of leather was just distasteful. It's kind of like having a paper mill right out right by your house. Nobody wants to live by the paper mill. Okay, so that's kind of the way it was with a tanner. Did nobody want to live by the tanner? Did nobody want to be around that all the time? That's why they were required to be 50 cubits outside of the bounds of the city. You know, Simon was right by the sea because tanning requires copious amounts of salt water. That's just a requirement of tanning leather. You got to have a lot of salt water. It's just the smell and just the aspect of what he's doing. That's why it was kind of just notable that Peter, who was a pretty fastidious Jew, stayed in the house, stayed stayed on with Simon, decided to to stay there. Simon was a brother, right? So that's you see that dividing wall being broken down, those old prejudices being broken down. That's the significance of Simon the Tanner. He's he's definitely not unclean because he's a tanner. I mean, everybody knew we got to have leather, right? I mean, we got to have it. It's just distasteful, kind of like a paper mill, like I said. Nobody wants to be around that all the time. Does that answer your question? Yes. That clear it up? Okay. Thank you. All right. So, 19. Barnabas and Saul at Antioch. That's what mine says at the uh, little break here. 
So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. So we're kind of going back a little here to back when, when, when Saul first started persecuting the church and everybody took off. Everybody said, let's get out of town, right? Philip went to Samaria. Everybody scattered out. So what were they doing in all this time? <clears throat> so those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, that was Saul of Tarsus doing the persecuting there. They made their way to Phoenicia. That's the area of Tyre and Sidon. That's kind of north. If, do, we need to, do I need to show you where that is or does it matter? It would be helpful. Okay, they went, to, they went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one, there it is, except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene is in North Africa, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So, that's good news, huh? Hit this real quick. I'll show you. Mediterranean Sea. Here's uh So Antioch be about right here. Tired side and be about right here. This is Phoenicia. I think this is modern day Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken. Like here's uh Sea of Galilee, Egypt, Jordan, Dead Sea, or Jerusalem about right here, Damascus right here, that's Syria, Egypt's down here, Cyrene being north of Egypt. Joppa, where we were just talking about, be, I don't know, around here somewhere. So this is Tyre and Sidon. That's what they would call Phoenicia. And then uh, Antioch's way up here. It's in modern-day Turkey. Kind of like Turkey. Kind of comes around like this, the modern border of Turkey. That's called Antakyas today. Still there. Antakyas. Anyway, it gets kind of... So, so the gospel has left Judea, okay? This is just kind of the area of Judea, Samaria, Galilee. It's all right here. And so these scattered believers that went to Phoenicia, oh, Cyprus. It's an island sitting about right here. That's where Barnabas is from. He grew up on Cyprus. So we're going to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. So I guess the Hellenists are the same as Greece? Yes. Greek-speaking people. That is correct. Yours says Hellenist. Mine says Greek. Mine, it's, I have. Mine's Greek. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. Okay. Mine calls uh, it several times in Acts when it's talking referring to Greek-speaking Jews, it calls them Hellenistic Jews. Yeah. That's all that means. Helen is Helen of Troy. Okay. That's where that name Hellenist comes from, from Helen of Troy. So. What is what's happening here? It's important. So this fire of the gospel is spreading beyond the borders of Palestine. The province, the Roman province of Palestine, is, is we're, we're getting out of there now. The, the fire is, is getting outside of its borders. And so we've seen <coughs> conversions to people. You know, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch bring the gospel to Africa. 
We've seen Cornelius converted. We saw Paul, this very legalistic, conservative, trained Pharisee converted. But what we're going to see now is the first Gentile church being formed in Antioch. And that's what I'm, when I said, you know, the, the, the epicenter has always been Jerusalem. But now, going forward, all that's going to move to Antioch right here. And all the actions there. All that's really left in Jerusalem now is just a small remnant, really, church. Because most everybody flew, fled when Saul started throwing everybody in prison. Everybody took off, went back to their wherever they came from, right? So the church in Jerusalem is kind of like a remnant now. <clears throat> the hard-headed ones that are hanging on, being faithful to their command, to their commandment to bring the gospel, but... It's very much reduced in size. And so let's just talk about Antioch for a minute. And because this is where all our focus is moving to. So let's just establish our new setting. Okay. Antioch is huge compared to any, you know, in the Roman Empire, it's the third largest city in Rome, in the Roman Empire at this point in, in history. You got Rome, number one, Alexandria in Egypt is number two. That's where the it was a big center of learning. Yeah, the library was there and all. Of course, Rome is the governmental seat in the Roman Empire. And then you got Antioch, which is the third largest city. And uh, it's kind of a cultural center. There's a lot of people live here. You got Romans, Greeks. Jews, Arabs, Arabics, uh, the people from Iraq, or Persians. Lots of different cultures mixed in here, and there's a lot of paganism. This is a very wicked place. place um, some of the early Roman poets <clears throat> basically claimed that all the rot that was in Rome came from Antioch. That's... That's mentioned in my in my little book here. Let's, he's got a lot of good stuff about Antioch. It's just easier just to read it. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. He gives some good information here. Just to kind of tell us what what's going on in Antioch, what it's all about. <clears throat> oh, we're bad. There's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. Okay. Okay, Antioch was situated on the Antes River. There's a river running right here into the Mediterranean. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 20 miles east of the Mediterranean at the convergence of the Taurus and Lebanon Mountains where the Orontes River breaks through on its way to the sea. So during the first century, it was the third largest city in the world behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a melting pot for at least five cultures, Greek, Roman, Semitic, Arab, and Persian. The Jews made up one-seventh of the city's population and had legal sanction to follow their own laws in their own neighborhoods. Antioch was famous for its chariot racing and for its deliberate pursuit of pleasure. It was called, the well, this guy calls it the Las Vegas on the Orontes. Okay, <clears throat> so that's the kind of place we're talking about. Antioch was most famous for its worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles outside town in a laurel grove. 
throughout the world, here's a quote, the morals of Daphne, that's in quotes, the morals of Daphne was a euphemism for depravity. Okay? Daphne was a Roman goddess of fertility. Get the picture. The Roman juvenile, he's one of these poets, aimed one of his sharpest barbs at his own decadent Rome when he said that the Orontes had flowed into the Tiber, flooding the city with wickedness. That's from one of his works. Amazingly, it was, it was in this city, with all of its sensuality and immorality, that disciples were first called Christians. We're going to see that in a little bit. And in Antioch, he says this, Antioch was also the birthplace of foreign missions, and it had the greatest preachers. In the first century, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. In the second century, Ignatius and Theophilus. In the third and fourth centuries, Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom, and Theodoret <clears throat> all operated out of Antioch. And then he says, he has a statement, God's light can shine in the darkest pit, and God's flowers can blossom in the most putrid bog. And let me just read this one more thing about what we see when it says the, the people left Jerusalem, and it says some, some spoke only to the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. One little comment he had on that. He says, persecution thrust two kinds of believers into other parts of the world. The first shared the good news only with fellow Jews. The second was willing to share the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles because they were Hellenized. Jews, they were Greek-speaking Jews, and were not so attached to old Jewish prejudices. Okay, there's the, that's important. If we remember, a lot of people were in Jerusalem when the day of Pentecost happened who were not from Jerusalem. They were from other places. They did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic or Greek. A lot of Greek-speaking Jews were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And so when the persecution happened, they all went back home. Okay, and they brought, the, they brought the gospel with them. <clears throat> and they were willing to share the gospel with Gentiles because they were Hellenized and were not so attached to Jewish prejudices against Gentiles. They grew up around Gentiles. So these unnamed Jews, you know, we don't know who these people are. It just says some men from Cyrene and Cyprus. These unnamed Jews from the island of Cyprus and Cyrene in North Africa, here we go, with no official direction, no human instruction, no precedent to follow, nothing but a burning love for Christ, took the message to Antioch without realizing the revolutionary greatness of their act. They were the first believers to bring the explosive light of Christianity into the midnight of paganism. Okay, so we're talking about an extremely pagan place here. Big time worshippers of Daphne. And that pretty much covers. Well, let's just, let me. Okay, so historical records say that most people in Antioch converted to Christianity over the next 200 years. Antioch became the center of Christianity in the ancient world. 
but today only a handful, the majority Muslim today, sadly. Not a lot of Christians in Antakias today. Or Antakia. Yeah, that's what it is. Not Antakias, Antakia. Is that what it's called today? <clears throat> so, everybody clear on that? Antioch, pagan, wicked. But the light of the gospel is landed there, and it's, and then look what it says, which is the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So these are not apostles; these are just believers who were ran out of town. Okay, and they went and gave brought the brought the word to to uh, Antioch, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And that's all it takes. Somebody willing to speak the gospel and the hand of the Lord to, to put it in the hearer's heart. <clears throat> Verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. My note here on that verse is that the church had leaders at this point. Somebody in Jerusalem, this wasn't just a motley crew. Well, let's draw straws, see who's going to go to Antioch. That's not, that's not what happens here. The, the apostles are still there. so And they picked Barnabas to go check out what's going on in Antioch. Barnabas. So that tells us right there, Bar Barnabas is likely one of the leaders of the church. He's not an apostle, but he's an important member of the Jerusalem church. He was one of the deacons who was picked to serve the widows. <clears throat> Barnabas has spoke about a lot, so that, that's, there's a reason for that. But that's my, you know, we want to see that the church has leadership there. It's already established hierarchy within the church. And they heard about it and they sent Barnabas. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced <clears throat> and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So, Barnabas gets to Antioch, and what does Barnabas do? He rejoices. He didn't come in and say, man, look at all these dirty Gentiles with the name of my Lord Jesus on their lips. None of that. He sees grace. He sees God is extending grace to these people. He's shining his light into this dark place, and he rejoices over it. So, what I want to see here is he sees changed lives. Okay. So that's what Barnabas sees when he reaches Antioch. He sees believers walking in Christian faith in the midst of a dark pagan city. He sees evidence of changed lives. Remember what we talked about back in some early chapters. When that, when that lame man was healed at the, at the temple, remember, they couldn't argue with that. The Pharisees, they want, the Sadducees, they wanted to raise a big fuss about it, but they, they, there's nothing they could say. You cannot argue with a changed life. You can argue with words, but you can't argue with a changed life. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. We, we profess Christ, right? We all confess Christ. We hold fast to our confession. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. Could our lives, 
our walk day to day be used in a court of law as evidence of our witness? That's the question. Does my does my life match my witness? What I say, does it? What I do, does it match what I say? And would that hold up in a court of law? If they started calling in witnesses and saying, "Okay, Craig professes Christ. Tell me about Craig." What would that? What would what would that be? That's a question we should be asking ourselves all the time. What is my? I know what I say. People hear what I say, but what do they see? What What do I do? When Barnabas arrived here, he saw people change lives. <clears throat> he saw grace. Because that only happens through grace. It only happens through God's grace. He doesn't change what we do. He changes what we want to do. That's a changed life. That's a witness. That's my testimony. God didn't just change what I do. He changed what I wanted to do. Praise Jesus. And what did he do? He rejoiced. And he began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Let's just talk about Barnabas here for a minute. So what do we see from Barnabas? Okay, we, we've talked about Barnabas in chapter 4, remember? What we learned, he's very he's, he's generous, eager to give. He sold the whole field and gave the whole thing to the church. <clears throat> so Barnabas is a good example for, for us. He's just a normal Christian. Okay, he's just doing what he's he's just doing what's right. But what does it say there? For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And he was encouraging to the new believers in Antioch, and he encouraged them to remain true to their calling. That's what we all should be doing. He's eager to give, he's generous. That's a normal kind of a Christian outlook, you know. You don't need a lot of stingy, true Christians. They always want to help each other. He was encouraging. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit, or he was energized by the Holy Spirit, and he wanted to serve. He walked by faith. He lived by faith. His, uh, what does that mean? Not can do, but will do. Hmm. I don't understand what I was trying to remind myself of there. And he evangelized the lost. Just a normal Christian. Okay. But he 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 had great faith and he was he grew in grace and he was he was just a good he's a good example for us. Now, this next thing is just this is just me. Uh, I've mentioned this before, <clears throat> but when I got to this part, it just I think Barnabas wrote Hebrews. Okay, now, I could be wrong about that. It don't. That's not pertinent to the story. But look what it says. What he did when he got there, he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. What is the book of Hebrews? The whole thing is just a, an exhortation to remain with the Lord. Hold fast to your confession. Don't drift. Don't turn back to the shadow. When you have the reality here, Christ is the reality. Don't leave him and go back to the shadow of what was to come. And his point there at one point, he says, if you go back to that, there is nowhere else to go. You are damned. If you walk away and go back to the old covenant, 
you're you're done for. You've trampled the bullet of Christ underfoot. There is no other. There's nowhere else to go. You know, that whole book, you know, is just it's all about the old covenant practices, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system. We know that Barnabas was a Levite, so he would have served in the temple. He knew all that stuff. He was very intimate. Of course, he traveled with Paul all that time too. And, uh, so he would have been very up to, up to snuff on all this stuff, right? All them years he traveled with Paul. I mean, when he went to when he went to Antioch, it says uh, for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. That's Barnabas and Paul. So for an entire year, and y'all going to see during this time. Paul's not the leader here. Barnabas is. And Paul's is kind of his helper. So, anyway, that's my argument. And um, there's a place in Hebrews, in chapter 10, where I believe is the only place in New Testament scripture where the church, these people are exhorted to, to go to church, stay in church. Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10, verse 24. As y'all can tell, I've thought about this a little bit. Studied on this. I've listened. This, this guy, Dr. Dykes, that I listened to, I'm using this in my commentary. He he also thinks Barnabas wrote Hebrews. And he's he's got me pretty well convinced. But this exhortation is it's just, it's great. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. And that's just throughout this whole sermon, this exhortation, encouragement. Don't fall away. Don't drift. Don't go back. Hold fast. Stand fast. <clears throat> Which just sounds just like something. That's what Barnabas would be like. Not can do, but will do. What does that mean? That's driving me crazy. My little note here. Maybe obedience instead of uh, willpower. Your own. Oh no, it's right by where I where I've got lived. He lived by faith. He walked by faith. Oh, maybe it was Barnabas's attitude was not that I can do. It. No, I'll call you. I got it. Faith. When we pray in faith, faith is not believing that God can do something. It's believing that God will do something. Okay, that, That's what that was. It's not believing he can do it. It's believing that he will do it. His promises are true. If he says it in Scripture, it absolutely will come to pass. <clears throat> oh, we got to stop. We'll stop right there with our, our little talk about Barnabas. That's a good place to stop, actually, because next we get into Saul arrives, so that's a good stopping point. Alright. Who wants to pray? Anybody? Volunteers? Anybody? Okay, Brock, go ahead. <clears throat>